I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Hey guys, have you been thinking about joining MedBridge to access the PCS prep program, but just haven't jumped on it yet? Well, we have a special offer for you. We've partnered with MedBridge to offer you all a special discount code on their subscriptions. You can either go onto their MedBridge page and use the code PUSHINGPEDS for $150 off of your subscription, or click on the link on the episode summary to go directly to our Pushing Pediatrics page. Follow us, but not studying for the PCS exam? That's okay. You can still use this discount code as well. Share it with your colleagues and other friends who may be studying for their other specialty exams. You all know how much we utilized MedBridge during our studying and how we based our entire study plan off of their content. So take advantage of this special offer and purchase your MedBridge subscription today. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Welcome back, friends. This week, we have another special guest for you. Please meet Katie Powers, faculty at St. Ambrose University and pediatric outpatient physical therapist. Welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, Katie. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Katie and I met each other through the APTA Academy of Pediatrics mentoring program, where we both are on the SUM committee. If you haven't heard of the program, definitely check us out. We are always on the lookout for both mentors and mentees. When we were looking for clinicians from different areas of practice to interview this season, I knew Katie would be a perfect fit. We're excited to have you on. Why don't you tell us a little about yourself? I graduated from St. Ambrose University's PT program in 2008 with my doctor of physical therapy and immediately began working in outpatient pediatrics. I began guest lecturing at St. Ambrose in 2010. And as time went on, I became more and more involved at the university level. I'm currently in a half-time role, serving as a core faculty member in the DPT program and continue to work part-time in the same outpatient clinic I've been at for 14 years. I've been married to my husband, Adam, for 10 years, and we have two kids who are eight and six. And outside of work, I really enjoy volunteering. I serve on the executive board for two local nonprofit agencies, and I also teach dance classes at a local dance studio. It's refreshing to hear other moms who are practicing in the field 
when I was studying in 2020, my two boys were two and a baby baby. So when did you study for and receive your PCS? I sat for the exam in March of 2013, which was before I had my children. So I'm coming up on my 10-year renewal this year. We're going to have to circle back to you when we eventually go over an episode on renewal, especially with the new process using the MOSC credits. Tell us your background in the outpatient setting. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm actually in the first cohort to utilize the MOSC or the MOSC cycle, and I'll be in the first cohort to actually take the renewal examination when it's developed. So it's interesting. I completed an eight-week internship in outpatient pediatrics while I was in PT school, And then I began to work right after graduation in an outpatient pediatric clinic. And I had really wonderful mentors from the start. You're so fortunate that you had mentors coming right out of school because so much of the time as peds therapists, we can find ourselves being the only clinicians in a practice or a school district. Are there any rules and regulations that our listeners and those taking the PCS exam need to be aware of in the outpatient setting? The first one that comes to mind is thinking about the supervision guidelines that come along with working with physical therapy assistants. I know that there are specifics between each state and that the direction and supervision rules can change. There is a nice algorithm put out by the APTA on physical therapy assistant direction and supervision algorithms. And so that that's a really helpful tool, but I think that's a lot more prominently used in outpatient setting. The second one I think of is insurance guidelines, which are often specific to the state. I live in an area where we're right on the border between two states. And so things are vastly different, specifically with our public aid and Medicaid services um, within the two states. It varies quite a bit. So being familiar with that is very important. The way that we bill, whether it's a hospital-based outpatient clinic or a private outpatient clinic can also be different. And so being aware of those regulations is important. The next one, I I think that we're in a really wonderful role in an outpatient setting because we have a lot of overlap with some of the other settings. So our children that are receiving outpatient services could also have an early intervention therapist that they're seeing because they're between ages of zero and three. They also might have a therapist that they work with in the hospital if they've had a recent surgery. We have program here in Iowa where our children go for annual evaluations through the University of Iowa. And so there's another physical therapist is involved. So one child could have three or four physical therapists they're working with. And so navigating that relationship and working as a team uh, is a really wonderful opportunity for us. This is all great information, especially because our last two episodes went over school-based and EI settings. What does a typical history and system review look like in an outpatient setting? Most often the parent or the primary caregiver accompanies the child to the appointment and they complete the patient interview portion. But occasionally I'm able to ask some of the questions with the child. I like to gather detailed medical history, previous therapy information, the development of their milestones up to that point in time, their daily routines, school or daycare information, what the child's likes and dislikes are, patient or the parent's primary concerns and goals any community involvement they're in, and I could go on and on. There are times that a patient attends with a home health care nurse, but that's someone who accompanies the child all day long at home or school, wherever they spend their day. They may not know the entire history, but they can provide most of the important information. My systems review often includes for the neurological system. I always check for clonus 
and I do an assessment for spasticity and muscle tone for the musculoskeletal system. In addition to the obvious range of motion and strength testing that we complete with children, I always try to complete an Adams forward bend test checking for scoliosis in any patient. For the integument system, there's always a skin inspection and that looks different for every patient. So an example would be in torticollis. I'm always checking the neck area or the underarms looking for any redness or irritation or asymmetry from side to side. With orthotic users, we're checking for skin concerns that are due to their braces. Uh, I work with a large population of children that have had brachial plexus injuries. And so of course the shoulders and the axilla area we're examining. And then of course we have children that are more dependent with mobility and have poor skin integrity. So we're always monitoring that. And then finally for the cardiopulmonary system, we might watch for their pulse or their oxygen saturation levels. I do have some children that are attending therapy in the outpatient setting that are hooked up to their own monitors, uh, but we also will use our own equipment to monitor that type of thing during our sessions. I always make a point to remove the clothing on every infant I work with. I think you can see a lot about a baby by watching them breathe, just looking at their movement for asymmetries or abnormalities for a moment. You might pick up on things like diastasis recti, pectus excavatum, retractions with breathing. And I always want to assess breathing mechanics with all of my patients. Yes, I am new to really getting into the breathing work with my current kind of position where I work with a speech therapist and I have been doing some deep dives in that. And it's really, it's been really interesting, but we've also seen some really great stuff with just focusing on that breathing. Most of my kids are a little bit older, but it's been really, really fun. So Katie, when you're doing your evaluation, what are some of the red flags that you specifically cue into in the outpatient setting that makes you want to go back and have a conversation with their PCP about a possible referral out? A large referral population in outpatient pediatrics is torticollis and plagiocephaly. Therefore, we see a lot of babies. These are some of the red flags that I watch for with this population. Clonus, resting nystagmus, asymmetric resting position of the eyes, which could indicate an abnormality in muscle strength for the eye muscles, projectile vomiting, which could mean they have pyloric stenosis, not responding to auditory stimuli, which could be easily screened with a hearing test, which most geographic areas have a way to do that free for the families. That's a really large population that I see. And so I would say those are my most common red flags I'm watching for. Um, but other red flags that I watch for would also be the signs of shunt malfunction. I work with a lot of children that have had hydrocephalus and have shunts placed. Um, so knowing those signs and symptoms like irritability, headaches, vomiting, et cetera. Listeners, we went over the CPG for torticollis just a few weeks ago. I'm taking this opportunity to just remind you all to look it over and know your severity levels. Okay, back to our questions. Katie, what does a typical examination or evaluation look like in the outpatient setting? First of all, our families are able to complete an intake form that they do online. And so we do have a bit of information from the parent prior to them even coming in for their visit. So once they come in, I'm completing my patient interview, whether that's with the parent or the child. I always do a pain assessment. So that could be a numeric pain rating scale if they're able to do that. Otherwise, the Wong Baker Faces Scale or the FLAC Scale, which is F-L-A-C-C, -C, and that's used for infants. I complete my systems review, 
And then I always utilize an outcome measure. Sometimes I'm able to kind of calculate and get the interpretation of those assessments during the appointment. And sometimes it just requires additional time to get through the entire interpretation. So that may be something that I discuss with the family during the visit or hold off and do that in a phone call later or a second visit. Our clinic is a, a hospital-based outpatient center. And so throughout our entire health system, we're utilizing quality of life questionnaires or measures. And so we currently use the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, and the parents do complete that as part of their online intake form. And that's something we would then follow up with uh, reassessments as time passes. I always do an assessment of passive range of motion or active range of motion. And I always look at strength. So that may be manual muscle testing sometimes, but I would say that the large majority of my patients are too young to understand the rules of the manual muscle test grading system. And so I may use more functional strength testing things like heel walking, toe walking, crab walking, doing the Superman prone extension pose, push-ups, sit-ups, et cetera. And then in addition, with babies that have torticollis, I utilize the muscle function scale, which is laid out in the clinical practice guideline as the best cervical strength test for babies. I always like to do assessments for coordination and balance. So walking, skipping, running, a shuttle run, stairs, jumping, jumping jacks, agility drills, that list could go on and on based on your patient. I always discuss the goals with the patient and their family so that we're all on the same page and working as a team to set realistic goals for the child. We'll have a discussion that will determine the needs for therapy. And of course, that's based on all of my findings during my examination. We'll figure out our frequency, our duration. Do they even qualify for the services? Occasionally, we'll have children referred in for therapy and we find that they just don't qualify for services because the child is doing quite well and maybe they just need a little guidance and things to work on at home, which leads to my next item that I always do is some kind of education, things that they can start working with their family on at home. And then the final thing is kind of scheduling. So that's something that we would try to squeeze all of that into one visit. And our clinic, we're allowed to do 60 minute evaluation sessions. I know that not every clinic is that fortunate. Some get even longer. So um, I've learned to try to prioritize my time to get all of that done in an hour or less. It's probably helpful that they do a little bit of this stuff beforehand. So that way you can be able to see ahead of time. I thought everything you walked through was so great. Sarah and I have been fielding a lot of questions lately talking about outcome measures and you talked about so many of them here, which is awesome because it makes me think that our listeners better hear those and start to feel like they're familiar with them. We should say the words, the Wong Baker faces scale and the flax scale, and people should know those are pain measures. And then within that, you should know when you would use them if you had an infant or if you were looking at a kid that was eight. Those are going to be different. Those are the types of things we really need to be thinking about and not just thinking about at this point, because we're two less than two months from test day, we should be really comfortable with them. Same thing with the Canadian occupational performance measure. You should know that that's a quality of life questionnaire. These types of things are the things that we need to be moving into comfortable with and not just recognizing Going from there, what are some of the more developmental outcome measures that you're using in your clinic frequently? With infants, I like to use the Alberta Infant Motor Scale and the test of infant motor performance. So with the TIMP, I use that from birth to four months of age, and then I usually transition to the Alberta Infant Motor Scale after that. 
I spent some time working in a NICU follow-up clinic as well. And we utilize the Bailey scales of infant development or the Peabody. We also utilize the general movements assessment with that preemie population. And really with any infant, I think that's really valuable knowledge. With toddlers, the Bailey and the Peabody are continuing to be appropriate. With school-aged children, I utilize the Movement ABC or the Brunings Ozresti Test of Motor Proficiency, which is a mouthful, so we call it the BOT2. I think that's a really in-depth assessment of balance, coordination, strength, and agility skills in older children. Um, some that I, some tests that I use are criterion reference, like the gross motor function measure or the pediatric evaluation of disability index. And so both of those would allow us to do repeated tests with children over time and show those changes because we wouldn't quite get very much information using something like the movement ABC with an older child who has a significant disability. Yes, I am actually currently writing our episode on outcome measures because we've had so many questions. I'm trying to put together a little review episode. And so our listeners can look forward to me kind of going over norm referenced versus criterion referenced, why we would maybe choose one or the other, just to help people with one last review for that. So that's awesome that you brought that up because that's exactly right. You're going to use different ones for different scenarios. In the outpatient setting, you really need to be familiar with so many different outcome measures. The hard thing here is I think this is really place specific. Your specific facility might not use the movement ABC because you might not have the movement ABC. So some of these might just be ones that are great, but you might not be familiar with them because your facility doesn't use them. So that's where you really have to still know all of them. And you still have to know what the best one is. You might only use the Brunix because you only have the Brunix at your facility. And so, yes, the movement ABC might be better, but if you can't use it, you don't. That still might be the right answer on the test. The movement ABC is maybe the best answer. So just make sure people are studying what age range corresponds to each test. Know your ICF areas well, your activities, participation, body structures, and function, and make sure you know what different tests you would use to get the information that you need. The APTA also has a really good fact sheet that breaks down a lot of these outcome measures into the ICF areas. I think we kind of have gone over this before, but if you haven't taken a look at that, it's just a really good way to categorize it. And just, it helped me focus my brain so I could kind of learn the outcome measures the best way that I could. And then also, if you get a question that includes the age of the patient, you may be asked to pick out the most appropriate outcome measure. So it's really important to know those little tidbits about each test and then what age range. Okay, back to outpatient. Katie, what interventions do you use most frequently? Like I said, torticollis is really common. So I frame everything off of the clinical practice guideline. Um, So I'm performing cervical active range of motion and passive range of motion, working on developmental milestones, utilizing their developmental reflexes to encourage strengthening. So for example, eliciting head writing responses while I'm facilitating rolling or utilizing that muscle function scale to really assess that cervical strength and then some manual therapy skills. And don't forget lots of education for the families. Uh, For patients with neurological conditions, I utilize a lot of facilitation and inhibition techniques to encourage proper motor development and motor planning. I utilize body weight supported treadmill gait training 
postural re-education, generalized strengthening activities, coordination and balance training, and aquatic therapy. There's a really nice APTA fact sheet that outlines the benefits of aquatic therapy in the pediatric population. Katie, does your clinic see any of the more pediatric orthopedic injuries or sports injuries at all? Yes, we do. Like I said, the clinic I work for is part of an outpatient hospital-based system. We have two pediatric clinics and over a dozen adult clinics in our geographic area. So once children reach a certain age, we often refer them into our adult-based clinics because we have really qualified orthopedic specialists in those areas. And that's all based on our health system policies. However, at our clinic, we see a, a fair share of concussion, children that don't fully recover their function after healing from a fracture, Seavers disease, back pain, headaches, and my list could go on and on. Great question, Sheila, and thanks for that, Katie. Remember, listeners, we still need to know our orthopedic issues. I feel like so much of the time we feel so distant and disconnected from that because so many of us don't treat those typical orthopedic issues in our settings, but they're still really important to know and you need to know them for the PCS exam. So Katie, what type of education do you provide to families or who do you provide this information to? The first step is during my visits, especially at the evaluation, I'm explaining to the family what I'm doing, why I'm working on things, what benefit we'll have for the family and the patient, you know, just the rationale of everything so that they are aware of everything I'm doing. I always provide some kind of home exercise program activities for the family, and that varies from patient to patient. And over time, I've, I've learned how to tailor that for what the family's needs are versus giving everybody the exact same home exercise program. I provide families with a lot of education about community resources. So maybe it's connecting them with the people that will help get them on the application list for our Medicaid services in our state. Maybe it's sending them to our local support groups. We have a great one, Gigi's Playhouse for Down Syndrome here in the, in the community I live in. And maybe it's connecting them with other families or networking systems. We have a really great support group in our area that's for children of all disabilities. And that's a really great resource to network in. I also provide a lot of information with local medical providers. So the local pediatricians or our referral sources, we often meet with to educate them on any new services we're providing or back when there were changes with the clinical practice guideline in 2018, there was a lot more information about some of the preventative things we could be doing for torticollis. And we felt it was necessary to get out and work with pediatricians and provide that information to them too. So there's a lot of work within the medical community as well that we're doing to provide education. Katie, how do you determine dosage and frequency of treatment sessions and interventions in outpatient? I take a few things into consideration when I'm planning my treatment sessions and frequency. Diagnosis, insurance, and the family situation are some big ones. For torticollis, depending on their severity and the age of their referral, I might see them once a week or every other week. For neurologic diagnoses, I always recommend having an increased frequency during that zero to three year age categories because of that higher level of neuroplasticity in that young age. Depending on each state, we have varying rules of what their insurance will allow to be covered. So like I said before, I neighbor two states and a, a child in one state might be able to come to therapy three or four times a week. And in the other state, they might get once or twice a month. So it's really drastic where I live and how different it looks with, with you're using the Medicaid services from the state. Sometimes that means I can't see the child as often as I would like. 
that goes into the home exercise program. So if you're not able to see that child as often as you want, then your home programming is going to look a little bit differently. No matter what I think the child might benefit from, the frequency is always determined by the family's ability to get them to their visits and their commitment to their home programming at home. So sometimes I increase the frequency of my visits when I know that the family isn't able to carry out the home programming tasks for many different reasons. Sometimes I provide additional home program activities to families because they're not able to physically get them to therapy sessions in outpatient as often as I would like them to. We have families that are driving to our clinic from over an hour away to see us sometimes, and that's taken into consideration as well. I want them to get the most bang for their buck while they're there and not have to try to do that frequently multiple times a week. As for the dosage of interventions, I'm limited by my organization that we're only able to see patients for 45 minutes. So therefore, most of my patients are scheduled that length of time. I have patients that could definitely benefit from longer sessions and would likely tolerate it, but we're limited in our organization. I also have patients that don't tolerate 45 minutes, for example, some babies, and then I don't need that full 45 minutes of treatment. However, I might need that time to spend educating the family, and so I might schedule them for that full 45 anyway. There is an APTA fact sheet that talks quite a bit about dosing and frequency, but as you read it, you'll see a lot of variables, just like I mentioned, and just like I heard a lot in PT school, it depends on your patient. This is a good place to talk about dosage and home programming as well. Remember, intensity matters. So helping families understand and providing them with home programming that they can incorporate into their day helps drive those intensity numbers up. This is a big concept currently and something that you need to be thinking of during your exam prep. Intensity does not always mean in the clinic, but also what you are educating and helping family complete at home. So Katie, how do you know when discharge is appropriate? A portion of the patients I work with eventually do reach a point that discharge is appropriate based on the child reaching their developmental milestones that are age appropriate, or they have a resolution of their impairments, like if they had torticollis or toe walking. Some patients have lifelong impairments and probably could benefit from years and years of therapy. However, these patients often benefit from an episodic care approach. Direct services may be discontinued for a portion of time because the child has reached a plateau or they're taking a scheduled break, or maybe there are other issues preventing the optimal therapy schedule, like family issues or society issues, or a pandemic, for example. Many patients benefit from a pause in their direct services and then experience the benefits of reinitiating the services again. Some children have participated in intensive therapy sessions where they attend therapy several hours a day, multiple days per week but this is only maintained for a short time frame. It's not sustainable long-term and can be very expensive for families. This intensive session model is usually delivered in an outpatient setting, but it's definitely a unique model. What are some clinical pearls from your practice that you think people should know to be an expert in that outpatient pediatric setting? It is important to look at the child as a whole person I know you girls have said that before on this podcast. If you're treating a baby with torticollis, you always assess their eyes, arms, trunk, legs, feet. If you're treating a child that walks on their toes, you're also looking at their postural stability, their core strength, their vestibular system, and their sensory processing abilities. Many children are referred to therapy due to developmental delays, and we almost play detective trying to figure out the cause for their delays or even a diagnosis and we must assess the entire body and the child as a whole in order to truly understand 
which interventions to choose for the child. Always expect the unexpected. No two sessions with the child are ever the same. A standard treatment session with a child with Down syndrome might not work for a different child with the same diagnosis. Children are constantly changing. They have such unique personalities, which make every day in the outpatient setting special. Another area I've grown so much in since graduation is goal writing. As a new graduate, I set very lofty goals for my kiddos, and I quickly realized how unrealistic they were. I do think this is something that everyone fine-tunes over time, but always remembering to use your SMART goal format and base it on the child's function is key. And finally, I've learned so much by working closely with our interdisciplinary teams. Our clinic has PT, occupational therapy, and speech-language pathologists, and the knowledge I've gained from these relationships has really shaped my practice over the years. It's helped me to see the bigger picture and provide comprehensive care. Katie, thank you so much for spending time with us today and chatting with us about outpatient pediatric PT. Before we sign off, is there anything that you learned from studying or the PCS that impacted how you approach your setting? Prior to studying for my exam, I was really only knowledgeable about the few outcome measures that were used in my clinic, which we kind of touched on before. During my preparation time, I learned so much about so many more assessment tools that I have started using in my practice now, once I saw the benefit of them. Being that I never worked in a school setting, I really learned a lot about that practice setting during my studies, and that helped me so I could better understand the relationship between the outpatient PTs and the school-based PTs, because we often are sharing patients from our caseloads. Yes, I am a huge PD cat fan now, and I honestly didn't know much about it until I began studying for the PCS. I work in a really small private practice currently, so we have to be very economical. And I love that you pay per test, not for like this huge test kit. And it is very, very functional. It really helps me set meaningful goals for families because they're also able to see a wide range of different activities that kids of that child's age should be completing. And so they themselves are kind of picking out things that they feel are more meaningful to their family and their family's life and activities and everything else. But Katie, most people listening are in their final weeks of prep. So any last bit of advice for those going in to take the exam in a few weeks? My biggest advice is to approach every question by looking at the big picture. Like I said before, you have to see the whole child. So for example, most kiddos with torticollis aren't just torticollis. There's often something else we are picking up on. You've already put a lot of work into preparing. Trust yourself that you know this material. I spent too much time doubting myself when I was preparing, which took away from my time to focus on really reinforcing the material or even allowing myself to be confident. So be optimistic, have positive self-talk. You all can do this. Those were great tips, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that you all enjoyed this episode. If anyone has any further questions on this topic, shoot us a message on Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We will talk to you all next week. Happy studying. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.